Are you willing to examine the traditions and doctrines that you trust in for your eternal salvation? Welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I am Don Britton and I will be your host. I will be comparing the modern traditions and doctrines of American Christianity with what the scriptures actually say. You may be shocked to find out that much of what is commonly believed in American Christianity today is nothing more than myths handed down to us by men. So please join me now with an open mind. Hello and welcome back to another Great Deception Podcast. I'm Don Britton and today I'm going to talk with you about the coming of the Lord or the end of your life, whichever comes first. My question for this for you is this. This is my question for you. Are you ready? Are you ready to face the Almighty God, the God who knows everything about you, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, and sees internally of your heart? He sees it from the inside out, in spite of how you look on your outside to other people. So what will the day of the Lord be to you? You know, people talk about, well, I'm looking for Jesus to come. I really want Jesus to come back. I can't wait for Jesus to come back. Come, Lord Jesus, they say. There's even songs about it. So what will the day of the Lord be to you? What kind of of expectation do you have about the coming of the Lord? Have you really thought about this? Have you thought about this awesome and, 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 and marvelous day? So what will the day be to you? Have you thought about it? In Ezekiel 30, verse 3, he says, For the day of the Lord, for the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Now, when I hear the word nations, I always think of a large group of people that are diverse with many different kinds of of customs and so forth. To me, that reminds me of the denominational world. So I, I see the nations as a type of the spiritual nations of the denominations, of Christian denominations. So, You know, it could be then that the message could be here that the day of the Lord could be a time of doom for the denominations, possibly. That's kind of how I see it. In Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, and surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So the day of the Lord is not just a festival time. It's not just a jump up and down time. It's a time of a very serious time, a very sober time. So I want to ask you this question. Who is blowing the trumpet today in the church, sounding the alarm, warning all of those who call themselves Christians concerning the day of the Lord? Who is doing that, that it's near and that this day is a day of darkness and gloom and it's a terrible day for many people. It's, it's a terrible day for most people rather than a day of peace and safety, rather than a day of happiness because, you know, the church believes that almost everybody's going to heaven. The church believes that if you've ever prayed the sinner's prayer or ever attended a church or ever got baptized or ever had any of the spiritual gifts or ever did anything like pay your tithes or attend church or sing in the choir or do some good deed, you must be a Christian. Or you pray over your food when you eat. That makes you a Christian. See, the churches have watered it down so much that, that the things that God calls a true believer and the things the church calls a true believer a true believer, are two completely different things now. So, is the day of the Lord going to be a time of just dancing and happiness? 
Or is it going to be a time of gloom? Isn't the message today really about a salvation without a cross, an easy believism type of salvation, a pray the sinner's prayer type of salvation, a raise your hand and acknowledge Jesus type of salvation? Or isn't it really isn't the um, the isn't the message today really about blessings rather than the judgments of God? Isn't it really about prosperity of material things rather than about holiness? Isn't it really the message today about the healing of the physical body rather than the healing of the soul? Isn't that really what we hear today? So who is warning about the dangers of sin today in the church and the dangers of worldliness? Who 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 is warning? Who is blowing the trumpet about that? And where, where, when is the last time, think about this, when is the last time that you heard a message from your pastor, your Bible teacher, your prophet, whoever you listen to, that caused the fear of the Lord to come upon you? When's the last time that happened? Do you remember? Has it ever happened? <laughs> Does it happen? Where is that at today? You know, the word of the Lord should be like fire and like a hammer which shatters a rock. We should be, we should hear the word of the Lord. It should bring conviction. It should bring the fear of God upon us. So in Amos chapter five, verse 18, the prophet Amos has said this concerning the day of the Lord. He said, alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, he says. It be as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him. Or he goes home and leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? And then he goes on to say, now he's speaking how God feels from his heart. Now he's quoting the Lord and the Lord says, I hate and I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer up to me the burnt offerings and your grain offerings. He's talking about our worship service. I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. In other words, he's using the type of the old law to speak to us today. So here's what God said. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So here we see what the Lord really wants. He's not wanting our religion. He's not wanting the... Uh, the worship service that we present to him. He's wanting righteousness and justice to be in the hearts of his people. He wants it to be in the church. So the question is, do you understand now that the Lord is not the least bit impressed with our worship services or our songs or musical instruments or how, how good the choir sung or how beautiful the orchestra was? It doesn't impress God at all. And he's not impressed by any of America's so-called festival church meetings. You know, you see everybody all excited, dancing around, happy, gleeful, singing, praising, and carrying on and all that. I mean, I see it in churches. I see it on the web. I see it on the, on the, on the YouTube videos and stuff of meetings. Nor is he impressed with the sober, solemn assemblies. Like some of them are real somber, you know, and they, they're real ultra-religious about the meeting. God must be here, so let's just be careful how we act and talk and walk while we're inside the building. He says he's not impressed with either one. He's not impressed with them at all, especially, especially when there is no holiness, especially when no one is forsaking their sins, especially when people in the church are not forsaking the world or the ways of the world. When he's looking at the church and all of this 
these meetings and these assemblies and these worship services, these songs, and he doesn't see righteousness and he doesn't see any justice. No one is correcting sin. No one is calling out the sinner and telling him it's not okay. No one is putting the wicked out of the church. He's not seeing any righteousness nor justice. And so he's sick of it all. He's sick of all of our so-called worship services, especially when there's no righteousness and justice and when they're not present. And But he does see the sin in the worldliness that's in the church. So God's not happy with the way things are and he's making this clear through the prophet. So what's the day of the Lord going to be like? I mean, he's not coming. If, he's, if the day of the Lord is going to be to come back to redeem his people and take his people to be with him, and that will be the case, who his people are, the few. What about this church? What about this harlot church today that lives like the world, that's full of sin, that's full of false prophets, that's full of false worship? What about that? Would that be a day of gladness? Need to think about that. So do you really, do you really want, Are if you're a part of this church world, if you're part of this mentality of what a Christian is, and you think you're okay when you may not be, do you really want Jesus to come? Do you know what you're hoping for? <laughs> Do you really think about this? Do you really think you're ready because you pr you've prayed a sinner's prayer? Do you, do you think you're ready because you go to church somewhere? You attend church? You think that's your service to God? Just because the sign says services, 10 a.m., 6 p.m. or whatever, you think that's serving God because you go sit in a pew? You think that's what God wants from you? Do you think you're really ready to meet the Lord because you got baptized at some point or you or you can even speak in tongues maybe or or you was confirmed by your priest? You were sprinkled with water when you were a child and you were confirmed into the faith. Is Are you trusting in that? Or are you trusting in the fact maybe that you donate some money to the church or to, the, to you give to ministries or you help the poor or you did some good deeds or you did something that you think was a approved by God. You think that's really all it takes and you think then that you're okay. You're ready to meet. Are you ready to meet the Lord because of those things? The question is, do you really understand who Jesus is? Do you really know him? I mean, know who he really is? Do you know what, <laughs> do you know what he is coming to do when he comes back? Have you thought about it? In Revelation chapter one, I'm going to give you a little glimpse of who Jesus is here. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even though even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Verse eight, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then John says, I, John, in verse nine, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. The voice of the Lord is like the sound of a trumpet blowing, warning, piercing, saying, <laughs> write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And you know what he could have said there just as well? 
and send it to America as well, to America, to the American Christianity, to American, to the American church. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white as white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. You see, his eyes, those piercing eyes, he can see right through us. He can see through the to the innermost man. He knows all of our deep, dark secrets. He knows everything about us. Those eyes can see right through us. Think about that. Verse 15, his feet, they were like burnished bronze which has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Can you get this picture? His voice is, is like, it's powerful. It's strong. It's almost like thunder. This is the voice. This is Jesus. His eyes are like a flame. His voice is like many waters, like thunder, like something that would shake you up. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength can you imagine you can't even look at the natural sun you know you have to have shades glasses or you would you can't even look at it it's so bright jesus is brighter than that who can look upon the face of jesus and his and his out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword that's his word that's his word it's like fire that's his word. It's like a hammer. That's his word that judges. That's his word that commands. That's his word that separates light from darkness. That's his word that condemns sin and justifies the righteous. That's his word. We don't hear his word much anymore. We hear a watered down American gospel. We hear a lot of uh, talk about Jesus, but we don't really get revealed to the true Jesus. Not anymore. So this Jesus that we just read about right here, he's not the passive little modern American Jesus that we hear about today. The one you know that excuses sin, that just loves everybody no matter what they do. The one that's, he's just a little passive Jesus that's real mild and timid and he's just sitting there by the little lamb petting the head of the little lamb. You know, that's the Jesus that's presented today. The one that ignores our sins. The one that doesn't hold anything against us, they say. But that's not who this Jesus was in Revelations. The real Jesus is the almighty God, the awesome God, the God of judgment, the God that, that requires men to obey him and to live for him and to give up their lives for him, to take up their cross and deny themselves, themselves and to follow him with a whole heart. This is the Jesus of the Bible that we just read about. Not the American Jesus, not the, not the Christian Jesus of the denominational world, not the false Christian Jesus, but the true Jesus. That's who this is. He, you know, the false Jesus is passing out grace like candy. Oh, it's just the grace of God. We're just all poor sinners saved by grace. And we're just, oh, if it wasn't for the grace, I don't know what we'd do. Grace, grace, grace. It's, it's, it's being passed out in a false way. But the true grace is instructing us to not sin. The true grace of God is commanding us to live righteously. That's the true grace of God. It's not grace that excuses sin. It's not grace that covers up sin. This almighty God, he is the one who is the God of judgment. The God whose mouth 
brings forth a two-edged sword. The question is, who can face him if you're not right with him? Who can face Jesus if he's not right with him? This, this Jesus here, he's a serious Jesus. He's a godly Jesus. He's a holy Jesus. He's a righteous Jesus. He's a Jesus that doesn't tolerate sin. He's a Jesus that doesn't allow sin to be in his people. He's a Jesus that told us to repent of sin, that forgiveness would come for forgiveness, for that repentance, that forgiveness would come for repentance of sin. So in Revelation chapter six, verse 15, he goes on to say this, then the kings of the earth and the great men and commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Now, this is the day of the Lord. This is when the Lord comes back. Now, who are the kings? You know, if you'll go back and listen to podcast number 10, number 13, number 10 is about the paid pastors who are raking in the money. And, and then 13, number podcast number 13, is about how men are living. These men, these pastors and prophets, are living like kings. So when he's talking about kings here, there's more than just the physical earthly kings. He's talking about the spiritual kings in the religious system. So now, if you get, can comprehend who the kings are, then, he's, then we read this, then we realize the kings and the great men, the great men, you know, the quote, great men of God. I hear these statements about the great men of God. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. If he's a great man of God, he's a humble man. He's a servant. He doesn't take any money. He doesn't, he doesn't look to, to be uh, honored by anybody. He does everything as under the Lord. He does it because he loves God. And he loves the people. That's the great man of God. You won't find many of those. But nowhere does he call himself a great man of God. You see, the kings and the great men of God and the, and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong, these are all the false prophets. And there are also those who got rich from preaching the gospel. They're the rich, you know, the rich off the people, so to speak. The kings are the countless paid pastors and the countless prophets. They're the ones who are paid preachers living like kings from the monies that others have worked for. So again, listen to podcast number 10, number 13. You'll, you'll, you'll understand more what I'm saying. These are the ones who, who will be trying to hide themselves. Now get this picture. They'll be trying to hide themselves when the Lord comes along and they'll, they won't be alone. They'll be uh, hiding themselves along with the ones to be trying to along with the ones who followed them. When the almighty Jesus comes back and he is this terrible God of judgment, this terrible and awesome God to fear if you're not in the right place with him, all these people and all these prophets are going to be trying to hide themselves from him. And then in verse 16, Revelation 6, 16, and they, and they said to the mountains, now these, here, here it is, these pastors and prophets and these kings and those that got rich, all these so-called religious leaders and the people that followed them, here's what they're going to say. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great, verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Is that not a scary time? Is that not a day of darkness and gloom? Is that not a day of judgment? Is that not a day of wrath when the Lord comes back? Because few are those that enter the kingdom, very few. The masses of people will be under wrath. The masses of people 
the vast majority of people, the massive majority of everyone who claims to be a Christian is going to be under the wrath of God. And the vast majority of prophets and pastors and teachers of the Bible are going to be in that same mix. And they're all going to be, they're all going to be exposed. They're going to be exposed for who they are. And the mountain, they want, they're going to want the mountains to fall on them. When they, when they're exposed and when the reality of who they really are, when they wake up, when the reality of Jesus is revealed to them when he returns, they're going to wish that the mountains and rocks could fall on them to escape the judgment and to escape hell that's coming upon them. So in first Peter four, verse 17, I mean, we were, this is all over the Bible. I don't know. We never hear anybody talking about it much. Peter said, for the time, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. It's going to get, begin first with us. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? What will become of them? You know, that's a good question. What is going to become of them? Well, we just read about what's going to become of them. They're going to wish the mountains and the, and the rocks would, would fall upon them. And let me just read. He even explains in Hebrews what's going to become of them. So let's read that. Hebrews 10, 26. For it says, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now let me explain to you. If you go look it up in the Greek, that word knowledge of the truth is, the, is to have the exact saving knowledge of Christ. In other words, you know God. It's not about knowing about God. It's about knowing him. It's about being aware of him and the fact that he has saved you. And you, you so you're a saved person right there at this point. He goes on in verse 27 to say, but it's a terrifying expectation of judgment. So if you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversary so you're going to be put in the same category if you're a believer and you've been and you've been saved but you decide to go on willfully sinning you decide to continue willfully sinning thinking that you're going to be okay which is where most people are today think well you know it's okay i'm at least i'm saved by grace you know at least i'm a child of god at least god has died on his cross for my sins. And I, I, I know that I'm not perfect, but you know, I'm just a poor sinner saved by grace. That's what's pretty much out there today. So go on willfully sinning after being saved. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What was the sacrifice for sins? It was Jesus. Jesus is our sacrifice for sins. He's no longer there. He's canceled his agreement with us. And it says, instead of the sacrifice for sins being present, a certain, uh, there's a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire, which will consume the adversaries of God. So that's what, that's, you know, so what's going to become of them? When Peter said, if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man in the center? The godless man is the church guy, the church person who goes to church, but he's godless. And then the center is just the guy who don't even know God. You know, if, and it's only with difficulty that the righteous is saved. What's going to become of the rest of them? Well, this is what's going to become of them. A certain fury of fire, which will consume the adversaries of God. And Paul, the apostle, he also gave another warning in Thessalonians. Here's what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. He said, 
Now, as for the times and epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, we're still talking about the day of the Lord, will come just like a thief in the night. It's going to sneak up on you. You won't know. Jesus said, you won't know what day or hour I'm going to come. I'm going to come like a thief. If you had known when I was coming, if you'd known when the thief was going to break in your house, you would have been ready for him. The problem is most people don't know when he's coming and they think, well, he's going to be a long time coming. Oh, it's, you know, there's still more prophets to be fulfilled or I'll get right one of these days. I'll be okay. I, it, you know, after all, besides he's forgiving God, he's merciful. And I trust that he's just going to be merciful and so forth and so on. People just keep on thinking stuff like this. But, but Paul's saying, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they are saying, they who? The religious teachers, the men and women that claim to be of God, the ones who say they're Christian, while they are saying peace and safety, in other words, we've got it made, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. When Jesus comes, it's going to come upon them suddenly. You see, they wouldn't be saying peace and safety if they didn't think they were saved. They're saying peace and safety because they think they're saved. They think they're going to enter heaven. They think they've been forgiven and that they that their salvation is eternally secure. That's what they think. He said, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape, shall not escape. So listen to what the prophet Ezekiel foresaw he put it in, into sort of a similitude, like a parable type thing. He saw it, though, that it was going to happen in the last days. You remember that what the prophets wrote was for our, for our instruction in these days. So let's go to Ezekiel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Listen very carefully to what Ezekiel is observing in this vision he has. He said, Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners to, to, of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand, and among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now you can see this is in Jerusalem. This is at the temple. This is where the center of God's people were supposed to be. This is a picture of coming into the church today. This is a type of the church. This is type of God's church and the house of God, which we are the house of God. Then the glory of, the God, of God, then the glory of God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. The Lord said to him, "Go through the midst of the city. The city is a type of again the people of God, Jerusalem, the church, Mount Zion, however you want to call it." Go through the midst of the city, starting in the temple, that's where they were starting, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. Now these are the few. Do you see here that there are, who is, who is sighing and groaning? Turn on Christian TV, listen to the Christian podcast. Go on to the web. You can't hardly find anybody that's sighing and groaning over the condition of the American church. Yes, there are a few. There's always been a few. There always will be a few, but it's only a few. Who's blowing the trumpet to warn the people? It's just a few. It's almost no one. Most of the big time ministries, most of the big time ministers and prophets and pastors, 
They're all getting rich. They're on big salaries, having mega churches or having mega ministries, or they're just preaching peace and safety or blessings or healings or prosperity or whatever you want. You know, just call them, just send them your money. They'll pray for you. They'll get you your prayer. They'll get you your miracle, they say. But who's sighing and groaning? Who's blowing the trumpet? These are just the very few. Who's concerned about the abominations that's being committed in the church today? Who's really concerned about that? And he goes on to say in verse 5, but to the others he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. In other words, first of all, they're going to put a mark. They're going to put a mark on everyone who's sighing and groaning. That mark is to protect them. Do you have the mark of God on you? I hope you do. So he said, but to the others, he was saying in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. In other words, you're going to start right in the very midst of my church, right at the very point where the ministers are, right at the very top, the pastors, the prophets, the Bible teachers, you're going to start the professors, the doctors, the reverends, the clergy. Start right there and don't have any pity on them. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. They started with the leading men. And he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. Thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. As they were striking the people, Ezekiel said, in the, he saw in this vision, he said, I alone was left. I was, alone, I was the only one left. Of all of Jerusalem and all who were there, I was the only one who was left. I fell on my face and I cried out saying, Alas, O Lord God, you're destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem. And he said to me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great. You know what he could say today? The iniquity of the American church is very, very great. And he goes on to say, and the land is filled with blood, bloodshed. The land is filled with blood and the city is full of perversion. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. They, what they're really saying is God doesn't care about our sins. He, he, he just, you know, it's just grace. They're saying that the Lord does not really see me anymore. He just sees Jesus. You hear that one? The Lord doesn't see my sin. He just sees Jesus. Or I hear people say, well, that wasn't really me. You know, the guy that did the pornography, the guy that did the cheating, the lying, the stealing. That wasn't really me. You know, I have an imputed righteousness. All he sees is Christ in me. He doesn't see what I'm doing, which is a great lie. So they say the Lord does not see. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare, says the Lord. But I will bring their conduct upon their heads. Then behold, the man in linen at whose loins was the writing case reported, saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. That's a sad day. That's a picture to show us what's going to happen when Jesus comes. He's going to start with the, with the quote, great men of God and start slaughtering 
from that point all the way down through the rest of the congregations of all the people who have trusted in these men, who have trusted in these false doctrines, who have trusted in the false Jesus, and is going to have a great slaughter. So this is a warning for the present time. Judgment does begin with the household of God. And the Lord will begin with the pastors and the priests and the prophets and the teachers who have defiled his church with their, for unjust gain. They've defiled the church by failing to turn people from their sins. They've defiled the church by teaching false doctrines and false grace. They, they, they defile the church by having a perverted salvation, by tickling ears, by glorifying themselves and for destroying the lives of God's people by misleading them for personal gain, for money, for reputation, for a life of ease, for being a king, for getting rich, for getting it, taking it easy, for being honored by men. Whatever it is, they're selling people's souls. They're destroying people's souls for their own personal gain. So when the Lord comes, there will be a great slaughter of these false prophets and of these false teachers and these false pastors and these reverends and these clergymen and these doctorates and all these men who claim to be the leaders of God, they're going to be slaughtered except for the few who sigh and groan over the abominations being committed by the church. Remember what Jesus said. Only a few will be saved. And it's because only a few will sigh and groan over the condition of the church. Only a few will be blowing the trumpet to warn people. Only a few will be persecuted and hated and called crazy and cult and everything else because they say what God says. Only a few will have the mark of God on them. Only a few. In Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus said, Enter by that narrow way, that narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. That's what I'm talking about. This broad gate is the whole American Christianity denominational world of false teachers and false prophets and false doctrines. This is the wide way. This is the way that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. It's very narrow. It's small. It's difficult. And there's only a few who enter by it. Jesus also said in Matthew 7.21, that was Matthew 7.13, now Matthew 7.21, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. You have to do the will of Father. Not everyone says, Lord, Lord. Not everyone prays a sinner's prayer. Not everyone that acknowledges Jesus Christ with their mouth is the one who acknowledges him with their life. And he goes on to say, and many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? He didn't say they didn't do that. All he said was, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So <laughs> let's wake up here. Just because somebody says Lord, Lord, or says I believe in Jesus, or I love God, or whatever, doesn't mean he belongs to God. Or just because he prayed a sinner's prayer, or he made a confession, or an acknowledgement in church, or got baptized, doesn't mean that he belongs to God. And it just because he can prophesy, and see visions and dreams, and make predictions, even if they come true, doesn't mean he's of God. And just because he can you know, cast out demons, 
and perform miracles doesn't mean he's of God. Even the false prophets can do that. It's all over the Bible. Jesus warned that in the last days, there would be many signs and wonders, many false signs and wonders that come, even great signs and wonders, he said, that come through the false prophets. So what? If he practices sin, if he's greedy and selfish, if he's prideful, if it's all about him, if he's a paid pastor, he's taking your money, it doesn't matter if he can do all those other things. He's under the judgment of God. He's the one that's going to have to run for the mountains when Jesus comes. So the question today is, what about you? What about you? We see all that's going on out there, but let's bring it down to personal. What about you? What about me? Are you ready to meet the almighty and awesome Jesus face to face? I mean, the one whose face is like the sun, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword, whose voice is like many waters, oceans, thunders, rivers, you know, whatever, powerful. Are you ready to meet him? Have you thought about it? Is the day of the Lord to you a, a happy time or a day of terror? What is it? Are you hoping in a doctrine that you've been given by the church world to save you, like once a son, always a son, once saved, always saved. If you speak in tongues, you have the Holy Spirit or you were, or you, you got baptized into Christ or whatever it is you're trusting. Are you trusting in something like that? Are you trusting in some kind of a doctrine or some kind of a, of a slogan to save you, to give you a pass? I hope you're not. You see, there's either just heaven or hell We've heard a lot about heaven from the church world. In fact, every funeral you go to, everybody goes to heaven. There's a guy over here near where I'm at, where I live. He's got a business and he's got a sign painted in the back window of his truck. He said, everybody goes to heaven and everybody stays there. And that's kind of the mentality we have today. Not everybody says it that way, but in their heart, that's kind of what we think in this American Christianity we have today. So we've heard a lot about heaven but we haven't heard near enough about hell. And a lot of people don't realize it, but Jesus talked a lot more about hell than he did about heaven. So hell is worse than you can even imagine. You can't even comprehend the horror and the terror and the misery of hell. It's, it's, if you could even imagine being in a third world country, say like Mexico or, or like Iran or Iraq or somewhere like that and being thrown into their miserable prison, and having to stay there for, say, most of your life or for many decades and having to live through that horrible, having to eat slime, having to eat whatever they feed you that might be spoiled or rotten or full of worms or bugs, and it just be slime, having to eat that to survive and having to live in terrible conditions with no heat in the cold or no air conditioning in the hot and having to smell the awful smell that's in that prison and be mistreated by the guards and have no way to go out and even hear the birds sing or to get a breath of fresh air or just to walk by and appreciate nature and the beauty of the creation and being locked up like an animal like that for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. That seems terrible. I was in the Dominican Republic one time and I was preaching. This was many years ago back in the 80s and I was taken to a prison to preach. And in that prison... The floor was soaked in urine. The whole floor was slimy from urine. And the smell was almost unbearable. It was all I could do to preach in there. And those poor men, 
running around with hardly any clothes on. They had no comforts of life. The place was hot and full of flies and stinking. And I'm sure what they were having to eat was no nothing you would or I would even want to touch. And they were locked up there. And that's kind of like hell, except hell is a thousand times worse. Is there anything is there anything on this earth worth hell, worth going to hell over? So hell is not just a prison sentence that you're going to get out in 10 or 15 years. No, sir, hell is forever. That's what's so bad. Without any hope, no hope of, of, of having another chance. It's done. It's over with. This life is it. And it's, and it's only this time we have, only today that we have, only now that we have to get right with God. Or it's going to be too late. So I want to ask you a few questions. Is your sin that you still practice, if you do, is it really worth hell? Is it worth it? Is your stubbornness to leave your false church, your false denomination with its false doctrines, is it really worth, worth it to go to hell over? Is your love of the world and the, and, and the things that the world has to offer, all the pleasure of the world, is it really worth hell? Is it worth it? Is your desire to be accepted by your family and friends as a good old guy, as a, as a, as a nice warm person, because you don't want any conflict, you don't want any rejection. Is it, is your family and your friends really worth going to hell over? Are they really? Think about that. Are you going to take a stand against what's wrong? Are you going to stand up for what's right for Jesus? Or are you just going to go ahead and go along with the go along with everybody? Is your stubbornness that you may have in your to, to give up your false hope in a doctrine or a sinner's prayer or a church slogan or a denominational belief, is your stubbornness to give that up really worth going to hell over when it's wrong? Do you hold a grudge against anybody? Do you have any unforgiveness towards anybody? Maybe your parents wronged you. Maybe a, a spouse. Maybe a divorce. Maybe you were cheated in business. Maybe your neighbor's done you wrong. Has anybody done you wrong? And you're, are you holding on to a grudge? Is it really worth going to hell over to not forgive them? Because Jesus said, if anybody won't forgive, neither will he forgive. Do you love your denomination and your pastor so much that you go to hell for them? Is it, is it really worth it to you? Or is your obsession over, or your addiction over with something, and maybe an obsession over sports or pornography or video games or anything, or your addiction to any kind of a chemical addiction or alcohol or tobacco or drugs or addiction to anything, mentally, physically, or otherwise? Is it really worth going to hell over? Is your laziness and your unwillingness to study the scriptures to show yourself approved as the as a workman acceptable to God who needs not to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth is your laziness to do that worth going to hell over so you'd know the truth for yourself Jesus asked this question what will a man give in exchange for his soul and for years my answer to that is not much really not very much can you imagine standing before the Lord in judgment and he looks at you and says, okay, what did you give in exchange for your soul? And you open up your hand and you've got this meaningless little idol. This little thing, this little little worldly doctrine of the church or this little false religion or this 
love, this pet sin or or you just couldn't give up your your addiction or your or your your obsession it's, and this little thing is just a little tiny now when you look at the big picture you look all around at eternity this thing looks like a little just a little disease or something and he says what did you give in exchange for your soul and you said oh i just held a little grudge against someone i wouldn't forgive and he says depart from me for i do not know you what a sad day so what will you give in exchange for your soul I hope that you will not be one of those people that would wish for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them when Jesus comes back. That's the reason why I'm talking about this today because, you know, you still have time if you're not right to get right with God, to give up your false religion, to give up your false hope, to give up your idols, your sin, to give up your false doctrines, to give up your false relationships. Give up everything that's wrong and give your whole heart to Jesus Christ and from this point forth to follow him and obey him till you draw your last breath, faithful until the end. If you think you're going to be okay, if you still think you're going to be okay by just being lukewarm, by being passive, by thinking it's all going to work out, then I'm sorry to tell you that you're going to be one of the ones that will wish that the rocks and the mountains would fall upon you at the end of time. I've done my part today to warn you and to try to stimulate you to think and maybe towards repentance. I hope you listen next week to another Great Deception podcast. I really do. Thank you for listening to the Great Deception podcast. You may visit my website at www.christianmyths.org for more information, for my blog and for my email address. You can also get my book, The Great Deception of American Christianity Without Christ, on Amazon or on my website. Also on my website, you may download two free chapters of my book. I hope you join me next week as we continue to examine The Great Deception.